Christmas, we sing hallelujah. That word means praise the Lord, hallelujah. And that's what we've come to do tonight, uh, especially for the things that he has done that we celebrate at Christmas time, that he sent his son into the world to be the light of the world for us. So Merry Christmas. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Chase Jacobs. I'm one of the ministers on staff at Desert Springs, and if you're visiting, if you're new tonight, or if you're watching online and uh, you are uh, tuning in for the first time, I want to say especially to you, welcome. So glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you've decided to spend your Christmas Eve thinking about these things, because really Christmas doesn't make any sense apart from what we've been singing about right now, that Christmas is about the coming of God's Son. And so this is exactly where you should be at Christmas time. And 
if, if you are new or you're visiting, I would like to extend to you an invitation that you can consider these things on other days than Christmas Eve. You can make Jesus the light of your world every day. And so I would love to explain to you, talk to you about how you can learn more about Jesus and how you can continue to grow in learning about Jesus through our church, especially by uh, joining us on Sunday morning. So we meet on Sundays with two services at 9 and at 11. You can find out about those services on our website or you can download our app. But we want to always be about learning and celebrating more what God has done, saying hallelujah for what God has done, and you can do that with us on Sundays. If you have questions about our church, if you have questions about Jesus, if you have questions about anything, we would love to answer those. After this service, we're going to have people right up front, right here that you can talk to. We'll also uh, have an email, info at dscabq.com. You can email us there, and we would be happy to help you in any way that we can. As for tonight, here's what we're going to do. Um, We're going to hear a lot from God's Word, the Bible, about what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. We're going to sing songs that are coming out of God's Word, that are thinking about God's Word. And then we're going to have our preaching pastor, Pastor Ryan. He's going to stand up and he's going to preach a sermon coming out of God's Word from the Gospel according to Matthew. He's going to explain to us what God is trying to say to us in that uh, word. So that's what tonight is going to look like, okay? So before we jump into that, let me say a prayer for our time together tonight. God, we do pray to you as Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we remember that you made us to be with you, and, and we recognize that our sin has separated us from you, and so we praise you, hallelujah, for sending your Son into the world to be God with us when we had made such a distance there, that you came down to us to redeem us, to save us, so that for everyone that believes in you, you would bring us back into a right relationship with you. God, I do ask that you would be with us tonight, that you would move and work by your Holy Spirit to help all of us to see you as the light of the world, that you would reveal yourself to us, to some people for the very first time, we pray, God. And we pray that even tonight as we think about what Christ has done for us, that we would set our hope on the life that he has secured for us in that time in the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with you forever. In your name we pray, amen. Now let me read to you from Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let us stand and respond and sing out from our hearts. song of Emmanuel, this the Christ who was long foretold, low in the shadows of Bethlehem, promise of dawn now our eyes behold, God most high in a manger lift your voices and now proclaim, great and glorious love. Join now with the host of heaven. Come we to welcome Emmanuel, King who came with no crown or throne. Helpless he lay
Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Bethlehem's plain Gold I bring To crown him again King forever Ceasing never Over us all to
Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This man come to die, beloved son from on high, God and man to make us one, King and a King.
come, let us adore him. You can be seated. Well, Chase has led us through a number of scripture readings this evening, and it's my job, really my privilege, to lead us in another passage with uh, a little more slowness and carefulness in meditation this evening. In recent weeks, we as a church have been looking at these various purpose statements from the Lord Jesus, things he spoke himself about his own life and his mission, his ministry and his purpose in plan on this earth. Of course, Christmas is about the birth of Christ, but the birth really signals for us and, and represents all that he came to do. It represents all that he is and all that his coming signifies. And so at Christmas, as well as all year round, we should be asking, why did Jesus come? What's the significance of it? And some of the passages that Chase read for us, we see that he came and how he came, and there are hints about why he came. But with Jesus' various purpose statements about his life and ministry, we hear from the horse's mouth, as it were, explicitly about what he came to do. In Mark 1, he said he came to preach the good news. In Matthew 5, he said he came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. In Luke 5, which we looked at on Sunday, he said that he did not come to call the so-called righteous people, but he came to call sinners to himself. As I said back in week one of this series, and it's worth repeating tonight, especially for those who are with us for the first time, These purpose statements as a whole are remarkable because no one talks this way. No one can talk this way. I have come to whatever else follows. Well, that's already an astounding statement. Jesus speaks of his own birth as a coming, as if there's a place he came from. And indeed, there is. He came from heaven, he said. He came from his Father's side. So when Jesus says, I have come to, whatever comes next, it should strike us that Jesus speaks of pre-existence. Pre-existence. He came from somewhere when he was born. It also speaks of his predetermined purpose. Unlike any other human being, The pre-existent Christ came to this earth with a predetermined purpose, not a task of discovering his future vocation, calling, purpose, gifting. We discover what we're good at and what we like through various means and with a lot of time, closed doors, open doors, encouragement from others, discovering desires and giftedness. And then hopefully at some point you have an aha moment and you say, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. But Jesus came explicitly saying what he came to do. He's no ordinary man. He was truly born. He was born a man, but he's no ordinary man. He's the God man. He's God in the flesh. He came and he came with purpose. 
So tonight I want to direct our attention to another one of these statements where Jesus says what he came or came not to do. It's in Matthew 20, verse 28. It says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now there's a whole lot just in those very words But there's also a bit of story that led up to Jesus saying these important words. So let me back up and we'll read some more. We'll take in the whole scene which led to Jesus saying this important purpose statement. Starting in verse 17 of Matthew 20. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, the idea of greatness occupies these verses. Greatness. It starts with two disciples, with the help of their mother, seeking greatness. Seeking greatness. Verses 20 to 24. That's the first of three headings that I have for us. Seeking greatness. James and John, here they're called the sons of Zebedee. We know that they are James and John. They are among the earliest followers of Jesus. And here their mother is with them. And she takes the lead in asking Jesus for a big favor. How about my sons sit at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? Now let's start with the good. There's some good here. There's some faith in Jesus here. This woman is no doubter of Jesus. She's no opponent of Jesus. She's not a skeptic of Jesus. She believes that the kingdom of God would dawn, and she believes it would dawn in and through Jesus. She apparently believes he's what the Old Testament calls Messiah. She believes he will rule and reign on the throne of God in a kingdom to come. But she's far too presumptuous when it comes to her sons. She asks for too much regarding them. 
her son sitting at the right hand and left hand of the throne of the kingdom means that while Jesus is number one in the kingdom, how about my two sons are number two and number three in your kingdom? Well, on the one hand, who can blame her? Most moms think too much of their sons, don't they? Most moms want the best for their sons. Most moms think their sons can do anything if they'd only be given the opportunity. Well, it's not the mom's fault. James and John are also to blame. They're apparently in on all this. They think far too much of themselves. Jesus asked James and John if they're able to drink the cup that he's going to drink, and they say, oh, yes, of course. But they don't realize what Jesus is saying. They probably think he means something like, are you able to stick with me through thick and thin? But what Jesus is referring to here with the cup that he's going to drink, this is the wrath of God, the judgment of God that he's about to drink, to take, to swallow. He's referring, of course, to the cross. He just foretold the cross and resurrection in the previous verses. The drinking of the cup is for him alone. Oh, oh, they will drink a cup of sorts. Jesus says that. I think he means that they will die a martyr's death for the cause of Christ, but their death won't be like his death. No death could be like his death. His death is no ordinary death. It is death as a quenching of the judgment of God for sins. And as for those who will be seated at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom of God, well, it's not theirs to ask for. It's not even Jesus's to give. It's the Father's business. When the other ten disciples, by the way, when they get wind of what's going on, notice their reaction to all this. They were indignant at the two brothers. They were mad. Why? Well, maybe they were indignantly jealous, indignantly resentful. Whatever their indignation comes from, it probably comes from the same kind of attitude that James and John had when they had their mother ask that fateful question. They were indignant for all the wrong reasons. They weren't mad at the sinfulness of it because they were so righteous Who are these guys to jump in on us? Who are these guys to request front of the line? Who who do they think they are? Now, seeking greatness, that's a relatable kind of thing, isn't it? It's relatable. It's common. We could say it's the way the world works. We might say it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. So you got to get yours. And the passive won't get it. Practically speaking, it's relatable. We see this kind of thinking and these maneuvers everywhere. It's relatable theologically as well. Meaning there's a theological reason why this is so relatable and so common. It goes back to the fall of mankind. It really goes back to the angelic fall before that. Satan's rebellion against God was to rival God. And his lies to Adam and Eve in the garden 
were that they should take of the tree that God forbade because God doesn't want you to be like him. And they took of the tree to be like him. Not like him in all the ways they were supposed to be like him, all the wrong ways to rival him. It was rebellion. Seeking greatness is relatable to us because it goes back to the beginning of time. This is in our DNA. This is the world in which we live. And if you say, I don't know, I I don't find it very relatable. I'm not the kind to put myself forward. I don't like those who put themselves forward and they promote themselves and think too much of themselves. Perhaps then you can relate to the resentment of the other ten. Resentment. Who do they think they are? That kind of thinking, that kind of sentiment has the same DNA as James and John and their mother in asking for much. Who do those prideful people think that they are? They should be more like me. Humble. Right? We may not say things that are that laughable, but it's in us. We know it. It's all the same DNA. And that's why we can spot it in others. Sometimes we can spot it in ourselves. Often we can spot it in others. And when we do, we often find it repugnant. Not commendable. Not inevitable. But just gross. Self-promotion oftentimes seems to us, rightly so, to be ugly. That jockeying for power being opportunistic merely for self, self self-promotion, thinking too much of yourself. It might be common, but when we see it at its worst, we know that can't be right. It's not. So secondly, we come to this heading, redefining greatness. Jesus redefines greatness in verses 25 and 27. He points out that the rulers of the Gentiles might operate this way. Indeed, they do. Jesus doesn't deny that this is the way the world works. This is how kings of the world treat those that they rule over. This is how they think of their reign, their rule. It's a power grab. It's power protection. But verse 26, he says, It shall not be so among you. It might be common in the world, But among his followers, it should not be the case for them. Jesus is establishing a kingdom, a realm, as it were, with citizens in it who think differently than the way they were born to think and differently from the way the world around them thinks. It shall not be so among you. And then Jesus, verse 26 and 27 says that greatness in his kingdom is marked by servantry, by sacrifice. The first among you is the lowest. The way the world operates, the triangle has a point at the top. There's the lowly at the bottom, and there's the powerful at the top. And Jesus says the triangle is the other way around. The greatest is the lowest. That's upside down thinking for us if we've been breathing much of the air in this culture, in this world. 
But perhaps it is right-side-up thinking in an upside-down world that Jesus is describing here. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus brings an ethic, an outlook on life that is otherworldly. The problem is so great in this world, we shouldn't be surprised that the solution, the Savior, came with a message that just flips everything upside down. And yet, this whole thing of servantry and sacrifice being the earmarks of greatness, it's even still vaguely familiar to us, isn't it? This world is a bent and broken world, but thankfully it's not completely bent and broken. Some have likened it to a a stick that's put in the water. You can still see the stick, but it looks all wavy and bent. Our vision of it is skewed. Well, that's how this world is in this fallen condition. We see the bent and broken all the time, but there are hints of what it used to be. So greatness equaling sacrifice. We know this from great dramas, great stories. But we know this of any good hero story, any movie with a great hero, say Braveheart, where he dies at the end. Oh, that's horrible. He dies at the end. Yes, but what a hero. What sacrifice for his people. He's great. He's not the lowest, even though he's treated as such. Or take parenting. Parenting is lowly work. Moms and dads are called upon to lead their kids. And how do they lead them? Well, at first by changing diapers. By putting food in their mouths. By putting them to bed and waiting patiently for them to actually fall asleep. Or the giving of gifts at Christmas time. A parent may say... Well, I'm the leader of the house. I'm at least one of two leaders in this house, and so I should get the best presents. But you know it doesn't work that way. Little Jimmy goes into his closet the night before, and he pulls out a a goldfish and a battery and an arrow, and these are the presents for mom and dad that he's giving them this year. Really not great presents, but that's okay. You're not in it for that. How about leadership in the workplace, in the secular workplace, or, or even for that matter, the church? Isn't it true that good leadership of others is actually figuring out what they need to succeed and making sure they have it? I'd say there's a fine line between a leader of an institution and an equipment manager of an institution. Or one more example I'll share with you. My dad was a staff sergeant in Vietnam. He was awarded a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star. A Bronze Star with a V on it for valor. The Bronze Star is for heroic achievement. So what was the occasion that earned him this Bronze Star? Well, they were pinned down by the Vietnamese. It looked grim. And my dad, the staff sergeant went around to his platoon, the you know groups of three or four that were pinned down, and he made sure they had ammo. So it wasn't a Rambo-like scene. 
I remember as a kid actually being a little disappointed hearing the Bronze Star story. You just brought him ammo? I, I just pictured Rambo. I pictured, you know, 50 guys are dead and you led the way. And yet, well, that's just stupid kid thinking, isn't it? The military recognizes that that's valor. That's leadership. That's what was most important that day. That's a great sacrifice. But these are just windows, little pockets of great sacrifice that actually prove greatness. But thirdly, we come to the greatest sacrifice. That's our purpose statement, verse verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. From a worldly perspective, Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he had every right to have every privilege, every prominence, every honor, every bit of praise that any other earthly king would ever receive. But he didn't come like that. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to get. He came to give. This is why he came. This is the meaning of Christmas. You can see the fingerprints of this kind of coming, a lowly coming even in his birth. The earliest birth stories tell us he was born in humility, in lowliness, in rejection, and he lived in sacrifice. You see it throughout his whole life as you read the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's teaching until he's exhausted. He's, he has compassion on the weak and the weary. He feeds those who are hungry. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He barely gets in a little nap and they're knocking on his door again. He gives, he gives, he gives, he gives. That's what he came for. But you see it supremely in the cross, his death. That's where Jesus served us most. This is where he served in a way that only he could serve. He gave his life as a ransom. He gave his life, again, referring to the cross, which he predicted, not just in the verses I read, verses 17 to 19, but twice before that, and little hints long before that. The cross is coming. That's what's in view. That's what James and John and their mother and the other ten disciples don't get, why they need that kind of Savior. You see, Jewish people in the days of Jesus, they were looking for a kind of Savior, a kind of Messiah. They were under Roman rule, and so they were looking for someone who would come and be a king with conquest, a king who would throw off the enemy, a king who would secure peace in the borders. And Jesus didn't come as that kind of king. In fact, when he was before Pilate, Pilate asked him, how come your disciples don't fight for you? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, they would fight for me. They'd pick up swords. In fact, Peter even tried to in the garden. But Jesus didn't come as that kind of 
conquest warrior. He came as a savior. And that's exactly what we need. That's what the cross represents. When you see the cross of Jesus, what do you think that means? What do you think it signifies? Do you think it's an unfortunate ending to an otherwise good life? Is the cross of Jesus merely a moral lesson, an example of how to turn the other cheek when your enemies really wrong you? Or is it a ransom, a payment? We don't use that word ransom much in our culture. It's kind of an old word. We do use it when someone's kidnapped or uh, is held hostage. And then they might speak of the ransom. What's the ransom? And that's where it does overlap this old word ransom that we don't use much anymore. Someone in bondage held for a price, and when that price is paid, they're free. Except in that scenario, when it comes to our state before God, our spiritual state before God, we are in bondage, but we are not the victims. We are also the trespassers. We're the guilty. We're owed. Well, really, God is owed, and we owe him. And yet in this scenario, God is the one who paid. God is the one who is owed, and God is the one who steps up and pays. And he pays with his own son. Jesus paid with his own life. That's what it means for Jesus to be our ransom. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus was a ransom, a sacrifice, a payment for our sins. He was a needed payment, a needed sacrifice. Without the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's why this purpose statement, by the way, is really most important, in a sense, among all the others that Jesus said. Because if we had Jesus, a teacher, who came to teach... Well, that'd be good. That'd be helpful. We would be enlightened. And if we have Jesus who comes to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament, well, we should be encouraged about our Bibles. The Old Testament and New Testament fit together, and Jesus is the hinge that holds it all together. If Jesus came as light into the world, we should be encouraged because this world is dark. But if Jesus did not come to go to the cross, if Jesus did not come as a ransom, a payment for sin, then we're still in our sins and we're doomed. This is why he came. And if he didn't come for this, then none of it matters. It's a needed sacrifice a gracious sacrifice we didn't earn it we didn't procure it we didn't do something to deserve it this grace equation with Jesus doesn't work like okay try your best and then he'll top it off and get you through it's all of him it's all of him as a ransom or we don't have a ransom and we're stuck in bondage It's an extreme sacrifice. The ransom and the giving of his life shouldn't fly over us without thinking of the cross specifically as the means 
of his death. Crucifixion was the most excruciating form of execution ever conceived by the Romans. It's a long, prolonged, humiliating death. And that's just the physical side of things. He was a ransom. So he was bearing God's judgment, as we've already said. It's an excruciating death. But it's a completed death. It's a finished sacrifice. Isn't this what Jesus said from the cross right before he breathed his last? It is finished. Not just his life, not just his breath. His mission, what he came to do. He came to serve and he served unto death. He came to be a ransom and it was paid at the cross and proof of it was that he was raised on the third day. Proof that the death of Jesus met satisfaction in the courtroom of heaven for the forgiveness of our sins is shown to us in the resurrection of Jesus. He didn't remain dead. He's not merely a dead man. He's alive and he lives forevermore. And so this is a beautiful sacrifice, a beautiful ransom. You might wonder, if you're not yet a Christian, you might wonder why Christians are all about the cross. You might have heard that Jesus died on a cross and it seems like a a gruesome and strange thing for them to celebrate the cross. Yes, if it's merely a human's death, then that would be strange, but because it signifies our salvation. And because he didn't remain in the cross, but was raised victoriously, the cross represents everything we hope in, everything we trust in. It represents his path, what he came to do. It represents our story. It represents our path of following him. It's a beautiful sacrifice. So Paul, later on, can speak of glorying in the cross. A funny phrase, right? Glorying in the cross? Who would glory in that? Except those who know what it means and know what it means for them. Is that you? Have you come to believe that yet? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? And if not, where's the disconnect? Perhaps you don't think you yet have sins. Well, The story of James and John and their mother and the story of the ten indignant at their self-promotion might just give you a little window into your own heart. It's the condition of every human heart. We're hopeless in our self-promotion, resentment at others. We're all busy about comparing ourselves to others or wishing we didn't have to. Perhaps you've yet to see your need for a Savior like Jesus. Maybe you have come to see, yeah, you're part of this bent and broken world just like the rest. But surely the answer is some other kind of Savior. What? Which one? Or perhaps you're thinking in terms of some combination of Saviors out there. I mentioned this, I think, on Sunday or the Sunday before. But how... How prideful of us to think that we can sort of smorgasbord our own religion. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'll take some of this. 
but really I'm the architect of my religion. Well, who do we think we are? Jesus offers himself to you as a single source authority and a single savior for all of your woes. Now, he doesn't fix them all at once. You got to know that. He doesn't fix them all at once, but he begins to fix them. The grace of God, the sacrifice that he's made, for those who get it, and what I mean when I say get it is simply those who become Christians, those who decide to follow Jesus, for them it so fills them, affects them, that it transforms them. And again, not all at once. So if you're not a Christian and you say, Christians. I know some Christians who are all all about self-promotion. Yeah, he's not done with us yet. Bear that in mind. It's possible that who you're talking about isn't even a Christian. There are plenty of people who say that they're Christians and they're not. But when God's grace touches our lives in a real and saving way, change begins to happen. And we follow Jesus' path. He must first be a payment for us before he can ever be a good path for us. In other words, he is an example to follow, but you don't begin to follow him unless you fully get how you need him as a ransom. But once you have found him as your ransom again, it so fills and affects an individual that it changes them and you desire to walk his path path to go his way isn't that what chase read about in philippians 2 some verses earlier from what chase read paul says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each one of you not only look for his look out for his own interests but also to the interests of others Have this mind in yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. And then he launches into that glorious, I think it's an early church hymn of Jesus' selfless humility in the incarnation, leaving heaven, taking on flesh, becoming a servant, serving all the way to the cross. Follow his lead if you have this kind of savior and christian don't just think of that in terms of the church it's true we should do that paul was writing to the philippian church and telling them how to relate to each other here's how you should think of others in the church think about how jesus loved you and sacrificed for you but don't just think of that in terms of the local church isn't this a whole new outlook on life that Jesus is describing for his followers this is a whole new outlook on Monday morning whether Monday morning means you go to school Monday morning means you uh, take care of kids at home whether Monday morning means you punch in for a job whatever it is you don't any longer need to think of how you should promote yourself how you should get ahead, how you should maneuver to outdo others. That's the old world. Jesus showed us a better way. Lay down your life. Serve others. 
Lead with sacrifice and humility. Do it in a way that honors Jesus and perhaps others will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In this next year, with trials like COVID, whatever will come economically, whatever you think might come, whatever you couldn't imagine would have come, but, well, you just extrapolate that into 2021. Hopefully, those things won't come true. But whatever's ahead, we can have this outlook on this world and God's calling on our lives that's otherworldly because Jesus brought it to us. He was a ransom for us and he showed us a better path than the world around us. Let's pray. Oh yes, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came not to be served but to serve and to give your life as a ransom We pray we'd believe that. We pray we'd put our hope in that. We pray we'd be transformed by that. We pray, Lord Jesus, that belief in that and transformation by that would spread. It would spread here in this place. We say as a church that we are spreading God's glory broader and deeper. And we pray that this gospel, this Jesus would spread abroad in this room and to others who are tuning in. And we pray, Lord, that it would be anchored deeper in our lives as we keep our eyes fixed on a Savior this great. We thank you and pray in his name. Amen. Let us stand to respond.
Christ, His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. You believe that? Say amen. You can be seated. The Savior has come. The Savior has died as a ransom for sins, and he was raised on the third day. And you must now receive that. You must believe it to be true, but you must also make it your own. You believe this. You receive this simply by asking for it. In fact, it can be no other way. He's full ransom, not partial. He paid it in full. You must simply receive it as a gift. But you must ask for it. Our God will not just put this on you. He invites you to come. He beckons you to come. Come. Let us know if we can help you as you begin to come, as you think about coming, as you have reservations about coming to Christ, or perhaps legitimate questions about what it means to come to Christ or specifically who Jesus is. Let us know how we can help. Chase mentioned earlier, we'll have people up front who are here to visit you, counsel you, pray with you, or just get to know you if you're visiting with us. We'd love that as well. Or if you're tuning in online, you can use our email address, info at dscabq.com. Or either way, perhaps you don't want to reach out to anyone just yet, but Chase also mentioned our Sunday morning services, and we'd really encourage that. But we're happy to have Christmas Eve and Easter drop-ins until Jesus comes back. We're glad you're here for that. And we also invite you to much more than that. Because Jesus is much more than that. So come on a Sunday, either 9 or 11 o'clock, or perhaps even today, let us know how we can help. Let me read this blessing as we're dismissed from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Indeed, we have great hope.